Welcome to Crime Cults and Coffee. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Bryn. And I want to start off today actually by reading an email that we got from, well, that I got from my apartment complex. And I thought it was so funny. So I thought that you guys would enjoy it as well. Oh, God, is it the kids upstairs? <laughs> that would be amazing. But no, I actually filed an official complaint about them. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. Yeah, uh, the neighbors above them came downstairs, knocked on our door, mistaking because they went down a floor too low. Oh. And they were like, is blah, blah, blah here. And Carson was like, no. And he, she was like, well, the kids are being too loud. And Carson was like, I have a pregnant wife that's trying to sleep. And she's also very upset. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, we had to email a complaint, but they've been very quiet. So I don't know what they're doing up there, but it's working. Ooh, they're in trouble. Yeah, they're in big <laughs> trouble. I thought it was going to be a letter saying they somehow heard the podcast and needed to sign like a disclosure agreement or some shit. That would be hysterical <laughs> if they found us because they are like teenagers. Just, you can hear them. I don't know. They're quiet now. Wow. Well, that's nice. <clears throat> it worked. No more cameos. Sorry, guys. <laughs> right? So, yeah, we got this email, and our apartment complex does this every once in a while. Like, they try to do, like, resident events. So, they were like, join us Saturday for a Valentine's Day treat. So, I look at the flyer, and <laughs> I don't know if this is supposed to be, like, a play on words. It just sounds really bad. It says that <laughs> there's an ice cream truck coming, but... They called it the Scream Truck. Oh, God. <laughs> and there's, like, a picture of an ice cream cone in front of it. It's like, I don't know. If, I don't know. But regardless, all it says is Scream Truck coming. <laughs> and clearly it's ice cream. But somebody from the complex put it on our Facebook page. It was like, I don't know what the fuck a Scream Truck is, but it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> Something so. horrifying. Yeah, for Valentine's Day. Yeah, I thought that was pretty funny. That is. I love it. I'll update you guys on the scream truck. Please let us know. <laughs> is it because children are going to be running screaming towards it? Maybe. That might be it. Or is someone going to be running screaming from it? I don't know. <laughs> right, it could be either. It'd actually be cool to have like a Halloween themed ice cream truck and to call it the scream truck. That would be a good idea. Maybe and you that's what start... it is. Maybe they're just really off by holidays. Or it's based on my favorite movie and they serve you cones with the ghost face mask on. These are all quite possible. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> but I think it's just ice cream and they fucked up the flyer. <laughs> so any recommendations before we get started today? And no, I haven't. I finished Emily in Paris. I think I talked about that. The second season, which was really, really good. And then other than that, I haven't done anything new. Okay. Same here. Uh, I think I've mentioned a while ago the show The Great on Hulu. I've been re-watching that again. I never finished it, and I just restarted it with Timo because I forgot what was happening. But I highly recommend that show to anyone who hasn't seen it. I'll throw it out there again. It's so fucking funny. And the acting is just amazing and it's very british dry humor which is my favorite kind of humor what's it on it's on hulu and it's called the great 
Okay, cool. I'm going to have to check it out. Yeah, definitely do. Aside from that, I do not have any further recommendations. So do we want to get into our coffees? Yes, I can start this time. Okay. So I'm doing coffee recipe this week. And this one sounds fucking amazing. They all do, let's be honest. But I really want this one now. So this is a Biscoff latte. Oh my god, that's amazing. If you don't know what Biscoff cookies are, you've never lived. And they're amazing. So go buy them now. But this is a latte inspired by the cookie. They also have Biscoff spread. Yes. For all our listeners out there, you do want to try that. Yeah, that's part of this. Half the time, Timo and I don't even put it on a sandwich. We just eat it with a spoon. (laughs) (laughs) As it should be eaten. Yes. So the ingredients are two shots of espresso, one tablespoon of the Biscoff spread, three quarters cup of milk, and one Biscoff cookie. And basically what you do is spread the Biscoff cookie butter around the inside walls of your mug, put a double shot of espresso in your mug, froth your milk, pour the frothed milk into your mug, and sprinkle the Biscoff crumbs on top. That sounds really easy, so I'm definitely going to make it. Yeah, and you have the Biscoff spread at home. Yeah, I already have all the ingredients. I just need to make a good cup of espresso. Yeah, so you're set. (laughs) Sounds delish, Kels. Yeah, I'm going to have to try that one too. Mine is not so delish. So (laughs) I'm going to start it off that way because I took a sip and I honestly feel disgusted. Oh, God. Yeah, I had to stop quickly again because we are in coffee peril here, obviously. I had to stop quickly and pick up an on-the-go coffee, and I stopped at 7-Eleven, and I grabbed one of their brand iced cappuccinos. I got their salted caramel one, and I'm going to go ahead and rate it a solid two. (laughs) It is so sweet. I could barely get a sip down. I can't even drink the rest of it. I'm going to be honest. And yeah, it's in one of those glass bottles, so it's that kind of coffee. But this one is just so freaking sweet. I really have nothing else to say about it. (laughs) Gross. Yeah. I have had coffees from 7-Eleven before, and I do like their hot coffee that they make. But I have had ones from them before that were okay. This one is just – maybe it's just because I really don't like super sweet things. This one is just very nasty. Gross. So we'll leave it at that. Okay, so without further ado, should we get into our episode for today? Let's do it. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. Today we are covering two cases again. The one was a little bit on the shorter side, so that's why we decided to add another one in there. With both of these cases, there does come a trigger warning Both of today's cases deal with suicide and or suspicion of suicide. So if you are going to be triggered by that, please do not listen to this week's episode. Go back and listen to an old one. Yeah, listen to an old one. Reminisce. The first case that we're going to be talking about was suggested by... Can anyone take a guess? (laughs) You have two options. (laughs) It was suggested by Alyssa. So thank you, Alyssa. Thank you, Alyssa. Today's episode is about Sherman Sizemore. 
A little bit of background about Sherman. He was 73 years old at the time of this story. His wife's name was Ruby Sizemore. I love the name Ruby. It's cute. It's so cute. And he was a Baptist minister and a former coal miner. I feel like a coal miner, that is such a hardcore job. Hard worker. Yeah. He was said to be a mild-mannered, friendly, calm person. I want everyone to go take a look at a picture that we posted of Sherman because he is literally the cutest old man. He really is. On January 19th, 2006, Ruby noticed her husband Sherman was starting to act strange. And on this day, he yelled out, quote, they are going to kill me. Ruby didn't call the police because prior to this event, everything had been normal. That is terrifying. That honestly is. I can't imagine what they had to have been thinking, what she had to have been thinking was going on, especially since he was normally mild-mannered and calm. That was so out of character for him to just scream something, let alone that. Yeah, it's very strange. The next day, January 20th, 2006, Ruby called family members for help because Sherman's behavior continued but Sherman did not want to see them. He said they would, quote, bury him alive. A quote from Sherman's daughter, Lenoka Graham, quote, there was something there that changed him so profusely that he was not the same man. He was so scared to be alone. He had nightmares. He thought he was falling in a hole. His family was very confused, obviously, and wondered where this all even came from. And he began having panic attacks, insomnia, and nightmares along with all of this, which again was very uncommon for him. And like at 73 years old, what would have caused this, you know? Right. So what did cause this all of a sudden? The morning that these behaviors had started, which again was January 19th, Sherman had actually undergone surgery. It was an exploratory surgery to find the cause of abdominal pain that he had been experiencing. They were thinking maybe it was his gallbladder, so it was kind of just like an exploratory surgery to check that out. Mm -hmm. Weeks later, it was discovered that there was a mistake that happened during the surgery. The anesthesiologist was to administer a paralytic medication so he wouldn't move his body during the surgery, and also general anesthesia to put him to sleep. The mistake was that the paralytic medication was the only medication administered and Sherman was awake during the surgery. Oh my God, I have chills down my entire body. Literally another level of fear. Yeah. So the anesthetic was never administered. How? I don't know. (laughs) How? And aren't the... Okay, this is a question that you could probably answer. Aren't those two different doctors administering those two different things? No. Or is it one? It's one. Yeah, it's the anesthesiologist. Okay. Because I was going to say you only had one job if it was one person administering it. But still, how do you forget that? I don't know. And the one thing I will say about this case that we don't have is the other side of the story, which is like the hospital side. And I'm not saying that, you know, by any means that this was made up or anything like that, but I'd like to know like what their excuses were or like what they said happened to kind of justify 
because there's no side of their story with this whole thing and it's like what actually happened in the room they're the only ones that know yeah I wonder if there was some kind of distraction that occurred and then they thought they administered it or if it's just an assumption that it wasn't administered and maybe it was and it was just too low of a dose I don't know and like or something you would think because they're monitoring the vitals the entire time you'd think the vitals would be through the roof I don't know I don't know any anesthesia stuff that's not my wheelhouse but I just I want to know their side of it and like how this happened you know what I mean right that's so fucking terrifying yeah So what does this mean? Sherman could feel everything, but he couldn't move any part of his body except for his eyeballs. Even his vocal cords were paralyzed, so basically he couldn't scream or make a noise. Oh, God. However, his eyes were taped shut. Therefore, his eye movements were not seen. So they often tape the eyes shut so like the eyes don't get dry. They're not left open. They're not watering. So his eyes were taped shut. Sherman was in excruciating pain, but all he could do was move his eyeballs side to side. This movement allegedly eventually created a slit in the tape used to cover his eyes. I'm not really sure how, but that's what the article said. He could now not only feel what was happening, but he could see some of it. Luckily, though, someone finally noticed his eyes moving And it took 16 minutes for the team of doctors in the OR to realize that Sherman was awake this entire time. Oh, my God. That's so sickening. Yeah. Reportedly, one of the doctors instantaneously fainted. They immediately gave Sherman painkillers and anesthetics until he was knocked out. But the damage was already done, clearly. Like you said, I wish I knew their side of the story. Right. They were the only ones in the room that know what happened. They kept everything quiet. And we'll talk about that later on. But it's, I just want to know, like, what happened. Right. Like, was it negligence? Was, I mean, I'm thinking back to, I think it was a Grey's Anatomy episode. And obviously, Grey's Anatomy isn't real life. I know that, listeners. But... (laughs) I'm thinking back to an episode where there was an anesthesiologist drinking on the job and making mistakes because of that. Who knows if, and this is me speculating, that is not what happened, but who knows if something like that, you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck happened? Yeah, there's just like no explanation. What happened to Sherman is said to be called anesthesia awareness. It is said to occur in 0.1 to 0.2% of surgeries involving general anesthesia in the U.S. And this is a quote from medium.com, quote, The torment Sizemore went through may strike as a rare incident, but some experts estimate that more than 20,000 such cases happen a year. Wow. And that's some experts. And that's an estimation. So, like, who knows? And... Obviously, as we get further into it, too, there will also be reasoning as to why some people might not know. Many people that this happens to suffer from conditions such as PTSD, anxiety, depression, nightmares, and long-term psychological effects. You may be wondering, could it possibly get any worse? Yes, and it did. 
After the team realized that Sherman was awake, they decided to do damage control and they gave him an amnesia-inducing medication so he would forget about what had happened. This medication was midazolam, and they did not tell Sherman what occurred when he woke up. His body remembered the trauma he had gone through, but he consciously did not. Wow. I read in the one article that it is also unknown if that was a collaborative decision or if someone just took the reins and made the decision. But it's also like you could kind of see it from both sides. Either they were doing that to fucking cover their ass for a malpractice suit and the situation, or maybe they actually thought that this would be the best possible thing for him mentally. Yeah, I mean, I think at that point, seeing what they had done, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I would... I would think and hope that it would be for the reason of trying to help him as much as they could, like, out of what just happened. Right, like, not wanting him to remember it. Yeah. Because it's traumatic. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see both sides of that, but again, we don't know the reasoning behind giving him the amnesia-inducing medication. I just wish there were two sides of it. I just want to hear what happened. I know. I wonder if a gag order was put on them or if they just collaborated and decided, like, not to talk about it. Yeah, I think they're not allowed. It's up to the lawyers at that point and higher-ups in the hospital. But from what was said, it was basically, like, everything was done under the radar and the family was given a large amount of money. That was it. Mm Mm-hmm. Two weeks after the surgery, the nightmares and visions continued to burden Sherman. February 2nd, 2006, unfortunately, he could not handle the mental anguish he was going through and he committed suicide. Oh my god, my heart. Which is so fucking awful. It's just so horrible. There was a possibility that Sherman was having flashes of memories coming back to him, but he would not know if these memories were actually real. There's speculation that these nightmares were actually, like, visions of what happened. Yeah. And he was just traumatized and going insane because he literally could not figure out why he was seeing these flashes of things or what was happening to him because there was such a disconnect between what actually happened and then his conscious not remembering it. Yeah. His family was distraught over the events and then came to find out about the mistake that occurred during his surgery two weeks prior. They had obtained his medical records and had another physician look at them, and his family was advised to consider a wrongful death lawsuit against the medical providers. The family sued the hospital, and the claim was settled confidentially in 2008, and it was settled before it ever made it to court. Yeah, which basically means that they gave them a lot of money for them not to take it further. Yeah, which will obviously never make up for the loss of Sherman. No, I just feel so bad for this family. It was an exploratory surgery. It's not like it was even an emergency, like, not that that makes a difference, but it's not like it was even, like, a medically necessary surgery. Right. It's so sad. It's just so sad all around. Yeah. I just wish I knew more. Yeah, same, because who knows also the after effects that some of these medical professionals are dealing with with what happened to him you know yeah some of them have to live with that and 
it clearly wasn't an intentional thing regardless, but it happened. So it's just really sad. So sad. That was kind of a different one that we haven't talked about before. And I think it's just, like I said, opens another level of fear. Agreed. So I'm going to jump into the next case. And did you just find this case separately? It wasn't recommended? Yes, I actually went into a rabbit hole on Reddit. And (laughs) I found this forum. Basically cases that aren't widely known, but that have sat with people who have heard them. And I came across this one. And as soon as I started reading it, I was like, what the fuck? First of all, I've never heard of this case, but I've seen this girl, which a lot of listeners, you might understand once we get into it. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to start off with some background and bear with me. I am going to try my best with pronunciations today. So is Bryn. So this case is going to be talking about Rauda Atif. She was born May 18th, 1996 in Maldives. Her father was Dr. Mohammed Atif. Her mother was Aminith Muharamath, and her brother was Rayon Atif. She had gone to Haraya School and Villa International High School in the Maldives. And this is a quote from edition.mv. Quote, she had studied in India until grade six, after which she shifted to the Maldives capital of Male, where she finished her O-level examinations and earned a spot in the national top 10 results. She had then completed her A-level examinations and worked as a clinical assistant in the military hospital of Senahaya and State Indira Gandhi Memorial Hospital, or IGMH. She started medical school at Islami Bank Medical College in Rajshadhi, Bangladesh. She wanted to become a doctor. Rauda had a scholarship from the Department of Higher Education of Maldives. She had also modeled and been involved in the media. At age 14, Rauda was part of an environmental campaign of Maldivian national television. In 2014, she became well-known in the Maldives after a photo shoot. When she was 17, she got international recognition as the quote-unquote Maldivian girl with aqua blue eyes. And I'm sure many of you, without maybe even realizing it, have seen this picture. It used to randomly pop up all over the internet. Kels, if you look it up, you're probably... I'm doing it right now. (laughs) You're probably going to be like, oh my god, I have seen her before. Oh yeah, I've definitely seen her before. She had posted pictures on social media, and these pictures went viral. October 2016, she was on the cover of Vogue India. And not that this matters whatsoever, but she was literally so uniquely stunning. Honestly, her eyes are insane. Yeah, they're beautiful. She was described as very happy, social, and a hard worker and studious person. In some subjects, she earned the highest marks. She was open-minded and strong-willed, and she had a boyfriend who was studying in London. She wanted to move to Australia, and some articles said that she was in the works of making that happen. She was 20 years old at the time of this story, soon to be 21. 
March 29, 2017, Rauda was found deceased in her hostel in Bangladesh. Some articles called it her dorm room. She was said to have been found hanging by a scarf on a ceiling fan. Oh my God. Her death was investigated by Rajshahi Metropolitan Police. It was also aided by a Maldives police service. When police arrived, her body was lying on a bed. So she was not left where she was by the time they got there. That's sketchy. A post-mortem exam had been carried out in Rajshahi Medical College Hospital. This was done before Rauda's father, Dr. Mohammed Atif, even gave approval for it to be done. What? Yeah. The autopsy report ruled her death as a suicide. Her family, however, rejected this ruling and suspect that she could have been murdered. Rauda Atif was buried in Hatemka Graveyard, Rashahi. Wow. That's just, like, the craziest thing. Yeah, and it only gets crazier with everything that unfolds. It already makes you question with the details we've given so far. Did she commit suicide? And if so, why was it handled the way it was? Right, she should have never been touched. So some strange circumstances. The Atif family pointed out that there were discrepancies and inconsistencies surrounding her death. The family had found some interesting things in her hostel after her death. Dr. Atif referred to Rauda as a neat and tidy person, so the disarray of her living space raised red flags. There was curry on the stove that Rauda had been cooking. Leftover ingredients were still left out on the cutting board, and there was a bottle of curry spice under the bed. Like, how would it get under the bed? Unless there was, like, some kind of struggle. Yeah. A broom was also found broken into pieces, and a mirror on her wardrobe had also been damaged. It was pretty much hanging off of the wardrobe. Apparently, her college and students had also told the family that the door or door's lock had been broken down in order to get to Rauda's room. That's when they said that she was found, quote, hanging from the ceiling with a scarf. However, the family alleges that there were no signs of forced entry upon their inspection. Yeah, and we will include pictures. They have pictures of the door lock. We'll include that on our Facebook page. So, like, a lot of inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. The scene of her death had been quickly cleared. Police and college officials allegedly were ruling it a suicide before the autopsy report even came out. So I feel like it was one of those where they someone quickly, has like, it. wanted to cover it up. Yeah, or someone has it in their head of this is the way it went and there's like no changing that. Yeah. Not a single person took a picture of Rauda hanging and this included the police, which her family finds suspicious. Apparently, quote, 20 or so students had even went into her room when she was found. What the fuck? Which, why did that even happen? And why didn't the police take a picture of how they found her? That's just odd. Some of the students had been forensic medical students, but had not documented a photo, which is 
common procedure even to them they would know that right which was part of I feel like her father's argument is why didn't one single person take a picture when you know to take a fucking picture right there was also no CCTV footage available there was footage of Rauda going out but none of her coming back and even weirder allegedly footage of other nights were accounted for Apparently, there was a malfunction with the cameras the night that this happened to her, but they were working fine again the next day. Interesting. Which, if that just happened and was a coincidence, that's really fucking odd. There were discrepancies with when Rauda was last seen as well. Allegedly, she also went to the doctor the night she died. Her prescription was denied to her family, which mm, that's kind of HIPAA anyway, but. Yeah, but that's what I was just thinking, too. Maybe they just couldn't release that information. Yeah. Into the medical argument of things, as mentioned, Rauda's father, Mohammed Atif, is a doctor himself, and he is a physician with a background in forensic medicine. So, of course, he looked into findings to see what his medical opinion was. He alleged that there were bruises which could be from strangulation on her throat, and he said the ligature mark did not match the scarf. So that was his professional opinion. He also noted marks from fingers on her face. And this is a quote from edition.mv, quote, Dr. Atif also stated that there had not been any dribbling of saliva around her mouth, which is atypical due to a hanging. Jumping into some potential theories, her family has said that they don't know a true motive as to why this would have happened, but declared that they think it was a murder staged suicide. So that's their opinion with whatever happened to her and whoever was involved. One theory presented by her family was that Rauda could have been killed by an Islamic extremist for, quote, refusing to wear Islamic clothing. And there was some mention in some articles that I had read about how typically she didn't wear hijab, but while she was at school, she did, Mm -hmm. out of, like, respect. Mm Mm-hmm. But she would still wear jeans and sometimes she had issues with other students because they like questioned her wearing jeans. So I don't know if it was the refusing to wear Islamic clothing was in reference to that or if there was more to that. But I just wanted to throw that in there. Mm -hmm. Another theory was that a Kashmiri girl named Sarat Parveen could have been connected somehow. She was a classmate of Rauda, and there are some reasons why the family was, if anything, suspicious of Praveen. She was the first person at the scene and brought attention to the other students, which could have been her just stumbling upon this and finding her friend, but her family was just like, oh, this is just another tick. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So take it or leave it. She was the first person at the scene. Some students also said that Praveen went to the hospital with Rauda, which could have also been a concerned friend. Yeah. 
According to Dr. Atif, Rauda had told her mom, Amanath, about some strange things that happened between her and Praveen. Allegedly, and I'm going to emphasize the allegedly, one night while studying, Praveen had put sleeping pills in Rauda's juice. Rauda saw the pills and had fought on the phone with Praveen about what happened. Again, according to Rauda's dad, she said she didn't want to see Praveen anymore after that happened, for obvious reasons if that did happen, mm -hmm. and told her not to come to her room anymore. As a result, Praveen's phone was taken by Bangladesh police and unsure if they still have her phone or if it was returned to her. There was really no more information on that, but her phone was taken by them because of all this suspicion being put forward by Rauda's family. Praveen has denied all allegations, including the incident with the sleeping pills. And just want to make it clear that she has never been officially named as a suspect or a person of interest in this case. So this girl can be completely innocent of anything. Right. On to the aftermath. So although Rauda had struggled with some instances of bullying due to the dress code, her father stated that it was nothing of concern. She also hadn't brought up any recent issues with bullying from peers. As far as her family knew, there was nothing going on with her relationship as well. According to her family, Rauda had not suffered from any health or emotional issues or suicidal ideation. Dr. Teef has also said that the family had evidence that was being withheld from the media while the investigation moved forward. I wonder what that is. I know. Yeah, I'm curious. Mm -hmm. April 10th, 2017, Dr. Teef filed a case against Surat Praveen. And April 24th, 2017, Rauda's body was exhumed by the Criminal Investigation Department. A second autopsy was performed, and they also determined suicide. October 15, 2017, the police inspector and the inspector of the Criminal Investigation Department submitted the final report to the court. Her dad again rejected the reports and filed a, quote, no-confidence petition within a court. At some point, Australia's 60 Minutes had also investigated her death and, in a contrasting opinion, suggested that foul play could be involved. I feel like it's so back and forth, back and forth. Right. December 23rd, 2017, Police Bureau of Investigation, or PBI, began investigating the case. They were assigned by the court. And an article from May of 2019 states some information from PBI's final report. The PBI said that the possibility of murder was ruled out. It had also said after gathered evidence that Rauda had committed suicide due to, quote, utter despair over a breakup with her boyfriend. Quote, Rauda and Shahi had an affair and four months before her death, they spent around two weeks together in India. PBI learned about their affair, analyzing the photographs that they had on their phone, laptop, and about 
17,000 pages of WhatsApp and Facebook conversations between them, the report says. On the night before her death, Rauda infiltrated into the Facebook messenger of Shahi and discovered that he was cheating on her, the PBI official said. And that was all a quote from Daily Star. So the PBI also discovered that the night of March 28, 2017, which was the night before Rauda died, that she was treated at her college hospital after attempting suicide with sedative pills. The PBI also found rat killers on her bed, but said Rauda did not take them. Early on March 29, 2017, the PBI also noted that Rauda sent messages to her ex saying, quote, I only loved you. You never loved me. You're a terrible human being. You've done irreparable damage. There's nothing left. I feel hollow. I feel dead. At 2.30 a.m., she also allegedly sent the message, quote, you killed me. The PBI report also made a statement that, quote, allegations brought by Rauda's father was found out in the investigation to be, quote, unquote, mistake of facts. And that was a quote from the Daily Star. Her father and family again disagreed with the findings. And then shit gets weirder because July 19th, 2022, a Rashahi court ordered a reinvestigation of the case. And there was a hearing of a revision appeal and the order was granted. Why? To look into it again. Right. But they've had multiple opinions. Like what came up that made them decide right. to reopen it? Right. I don't know. There was nothing more. That's where it left off was this summer. Wow. Yeah. The whole thing is just so weird, you know, like how she was found. And I don't know. I know. There's a lot of things that make you kind of go back and forth, especially with the findings of the PBI, all those messages and stuff. Right make you lean one way but then how her apartment was found and just other little things make you lean another and I just hope that eventually the truth is found out especially for the solace of her family because clearly they're still fighting because they do not believe that they've been given the correct answers with things right and like we don't know all the information you know but Wow, I just hope that the family gets some kind of peace soon after all of this. Same. I feel so sorry for them. And it's so sad that regardless, her life was lost. Yeah. Whether she was murdered or whether she took her own life, she's not here is what it comes down to. And yes, if someone did this to her, they need to be brought to justice and the truth needs to be found out. But either way, she's not here. Yeah. I just feel so sorry for them. That's heartbreaking. Hopefully we have an update on that at some point. I hope so too. I feel like, I mean, in reality, that happened so recently that they decided to order a reinvestigation. So there's probably going to be a lot more legwork that has to go into it. And hopefully someone just starts from the beginning and takes another look at everything. But also on the flip side, like I feel like either way – 
the crime scene also was not handled properly, where can answers actually come from this with a lot of lack of information that they have in this case. Like, I feel like, like, her body was moved. There were so many people invading that crime scene. It was closed so quickly. I feel like there was just a lot lost, too, regardless of if it were suicide or a murder. Right. Which is really horrible. Really sad. Ugh. All right. Well, anything else that you want to add before we do our little spiel? I don't think so. I think I'm ready for the spiel. How about you? Yeah, let's get into it. So you can find us on Instagram at Crime Cults and Coffee. That's where we post photos, coffee recipes, coffees that we've reviewed. And then the link tree in our bio also has all of our listening platforms that you can find us on. And then you can find us on Facebook at Crime Cults and Coffee as well. And that's where we post photos, resources, any links that we've talked about, call to action, that kind of stuff. And that's posted weekly. If you have a case suggestion like Alyssa... Mm-hmm. Or a listener story, you can DM us at Crime Colts and Coffee on Instagram or send us an email at Crime Colts and Coffee at gmail.com. Also, if you'd be so kind, you can leave us a rate and review if you enjoy listening to our podcast. If you have something that you would like us to work on or a suggestion, just be kind. You can leave a rate or review on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, or any listening platform that allows you to do so. And if you're not able to do that on any listening platform of your choice, you can like, you can follow, you could subscribe, and that will let you know when new episodes come out each week. Yep. And until next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook